So the last time we met, we looked at the significance of names. Most importantly, the name of the Lord as the all-sufficient one. So we're going to go from this idea of almighty, all-sufficient, to now some of the smallest things in our world. So Guinness World Book of Records actually has records for shortest people. And I'm not going to be able to pronounce his name, but he's from Nepal, and he is recorded as the shortest man ever to have lived, and he was about 21.5 inches tall. Um, there's also a record for the shortest woman. Her name is Pauline Musters from the Netherlands, and at age 19, she was only two feet tall. The most diminutive road-worthy car measures 25 inches high by 25.75 inches wide by 49.75 inches long. It was measured in Carlton, Texas on September 7, 2012. And then there is also a record for the shortest professional stuntman. In case you were looking to break that record, sorry, it's taken. Um, <laughs> he, his, name is, his name is Karan Shah from the UK, and he measures four feet one inch, and this was on October 23rd that this record was. How do we even measure things, right? It depends, are you a US citizen or do you belong to the rest of the world, right? The rest of the world measures things with kilometers and then the smaller version of that is meters and then the even smaller version of that is millimeters, centimeters, there's even this thing called nanometers. But then of course, our measurement standards are inches to feet, to yards, to miles, right? And it's kind of arbitrary how they fit into another, but we must know these things because we are American and it's our right to be able to measure things the way we want to measure them. Um, the smallest possible size so far is called a palanque length. And it is 1.6 to the 10 to the negative 35th power. So this is equivalent to a millionth of a billionth of a billionth billionth of a centimeter. So that is the equivalent to a decimal point followed by 34 zeros and then a one. So that is the smallest way. I don't know what we measure with that, maybe atoms or something. But I started looking up all these shortest, smallest records because while reading this week's study, rooted in Genesis 19, the Spirit brought to memory what some Bible scholars have called the shortest sermon in the New Testament. And it's three simple words. It's found in Luke 17, verse 32. And here it is. Remember Lot's wife. Shortest sermon. That's it. Let's pray. We're done. No. We're going to take these three simple words from the shortest sermon in the New Testament. We're gonna look at them one by one and take some application. So the first word in this shortest sermon is the word remember. A quick Google search for the definition shows that it's a verb, which means have in or be able to bring to one's mind an awareness of someone or something that has been seen, known, or experienced. And I love that idea of bringing to one's mind or awareness something that you've seen before, 
that you've known before or perhaps experienced in the past. Uh, another definition of this verb, remember, is to do something that one has undertaken to do or that is necessary or advisable, right? So it's like, oh, I just remembered, right? Like to do this or that or the third. And the final definition, the third one, is used to emphasize the importance of what is asserted. And usually we use this when we're commanding someone else, right? In, in that imperative sense, hey, remember, take your vitamins, or hey, remember, do this, that, and the third. The word remember occurs 164 times in the New King James Version of the Bible. We're instructed to remember constantly. Remember the Sabbath, right? Remember his commandments. The Old Testament is filled with altars and feasts in order that the children of God may remember his mighty works. And likewise, the New Testament mirrors this same truth. As a matter of fact, communion, right, is instituted with the instructions, do this in remembrance of me. So we are to remember God's word first and foremost. So we're going to go ahead now and we're going to read all of Genesis 19. And we're going to remember the truths that you've discussed in your groups. You're going to remember the notes that you took as you studied this on your own. And we're going to stand while we do it because it's quite a few verses. But we'll go ahead and we'll pause every now and then for some commentary. But we'll go ahead and stand as we read this chapter. So join me if you would, please. Genesis chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Now, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he arose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Hear now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. But they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. Um, I underlined those two words. I don't know if you like to underline things in your Bible or not. If not, you could do it in the person next to you Bible. No, don't do that. <laughs> but he insisted strongly. And I underlined those two words, insisted strongly. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind them, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in here to stay, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary 
trying to find the door. And again, it's just showing us how sin deadens even common sense. Here, these men are blinded. You would think that their solution would be, man, what, what's going on? The thing I'm going after, the thing I'm craving, it's wrong. But sin nowadays deadens us in the same way as it does in Romans 1 when we were in the homework, right? Paul writing in the New Testament that they suppressed the truth and righteousness and therefore became futile in their thinking. In verse 12, then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, a son-in-law, your sons, your daughter, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-laws, who had married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons, to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. And I underlined there, he seemed to be joking. Because it's really, really sad that this righteous man, as the Lord calls him later in the New Testament, was able to convince angels to dine with him. But he was ineffective to convince his own sons-in-law of the coming destruction. Lot the laughingstock. Picking up in verse 15. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. I love that one. I highlighted that too. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Maybe that's why two angels were sent. Right? I mean, one could have called down fire, but maybe each angel took one family member by the hand because of the Lord's mercy. Verse 17, so it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, please know my lords. Indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight and you have increased your mercy which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See, now this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. Verse 21, and he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, and that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Verse 22, hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, and the sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Lot, the lingerer, who lagged in obedience. Now we'll finish up the chapter. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew these cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the city, and what grew on the, crown, on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the plain, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land, which went up like a smoke of furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, 
that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. And he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Then Lot went up to Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know that she lay down or when she arose. And it happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made the father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Amnon to this day. Lot lacked the leadership to affect his family. All right, you may be seated. I don't know about you, but reading this chapter, some of the sins that were happening, right? Like all the men of the city coming around Lot's house wanting to debase the, the servants of the Lord who were there. Um, at the end, right, the drunkenness, the incest, you almost like choke on even saying the sins. Like it, it just leaves you so ugh, grossed out by the depravity. And I think we need to remember that when we're faced with temptation, right? We know what our besetting sins are. But the truth is the Lord views sin all the same. And there are times that we make excuses for sin and we think, oh, it's not that bad. But it is. The Lord is clear that the wages of sin is death. So that leads us to our second word in our shortest sermon, lots. According to the Bible Smith Dictionary of Names, lot means hidden or covered. And it's interesting that the New Testament calls him righteous lot because that righteousness was definitely hidden and covered. <laughs> so we read through his life in the Old Testament. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia entry says this about lot. What we see is a man who means well. We see examples of courtesy, hospitality, natural shame even, some loyalty and gratitude, but who is hopelessly bound up with the moral life of the city through his family connections, alliances, that have pulled him down rather than elevated others. The language of 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8 reminds us that Lot was, even at this time of his life, a righteous man. Genesis 19 itself shows Lot vexed with their lawless deeds and sore distressed by the lascivious life of the wicked. Yet the contrast with Abraham is always present in the reader's mind so that the most lasting impressions that we have are made by Lot's selfishness, 
his worldliness, his vacillation or like indecision, and cowardice. Not to mention the moral effect made by the closing scene of his life. So again, the, that idea of contrast with Abraham, right? So for this part in my notes, I did two columns. I put Abraham on one side and I put Lot on the other side, right? Because here we have these two men who had very similar experiences, right? And yet they made different choices. And as a result, their lives are known for entirely different things. Abraham, his response to Sodom was always to intercede, right? We see that in the verses before the chapter that we read. So we're going to jump back to Genesis 18, since this was also part of our study. And we're going to pick up there in verse 16. And it says, Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to send them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Verse 22, then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. He was ready to intercede. And Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Um, I thought it was so sweet to note that one of the Bible commentators said it wasn't that God needed a lot of convincing to spare Sodom and Gomorrah, right? He just was so excited to share his heart with Abraham that it was almost the two of them working together saying, you know what? It's worth saving. If there's 50 people that are there who are righteous, this is worth saving. And I loved that perspective. In verse 27, then Abraham answered and said, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city for lack of five? And this time reading it through, I noticed the irony of this first request, right? Would you destroy all the city for lack of five? And the fact that there were not even five righteous found, right? There were only four who were spared from this judgment. 
And just that irony, right? That even such an insignificant number to Abraham, like, oh, surely if, if there were less than five from the 50, it, you wouldn't destroy the entire city because five were missing. And yet not even five could be found. That was mind-blowing to me reading it this time. And we know the story, right? So God responds, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And Abraham spoke to him yet again, saying, suppose there should be 40 found there. And he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham. And notice this next verse. And Abraham returned to his place. So the first point we saw about Abraham in our left column is that his heart was to intercede, right? Even five less than 50 and then 10, he was getting just in tune with God's heart to intercede, to intercede. Abraham shows us that there are times when an intercessor must feel that the eternal destin destiny of men and women depends on the intercessor's prayer. That was David Guzik's comment of Abraham's life, that there are times when as an intercessor, we must feel as if the eternal destiny of men and women depends on those intercessory prayers. We know it doesn't, but that is when we get to know God's heart. So that was the first thing we saw, right? His heart to intercede. The next thing we saw is that his home was a tent, right? It says Abraham returned to his place. He went back to his tent. That was his home because he knew that his citizenship was in heaven. He knew that this temporary earth was just that temporary. And he was looking for a city whose maker and builder was God. And lastly, what do we know about um, Abraham? That his legacy was one of friendship with God and sacrifice. That is how he was honored, right? That's how, what he was known for, his friendship with God and sacrifice. Not so with Lot. Lot's heart, it was indistinct. As we look at, at Lot's life, he was just going with the flow. He accompanies Terah from Ur. Then he migrates with Abraham to Canaan, then to Egypt, then back to Bethel, just going with the flow. So much so that he was even taken captive by some random people. <laughs> he just went with the flow there. When he was rescued by Abraham, he thought, okay, yeah, I guess I'll return back to Sodom. He was very much just indistinct. Wherever people would lead him, that's where he went. As a matter of fact, the only two times that we see him making a clear decision, it was for the flesh right? He lifted his eyes. He chose Sodom for himself. Then here in this chapter, he disobediently protests and chooses to go to, to Zoar, only to then end up in the mountains again. His home was in the gates of Sodom. He was a civic leader there. Genesis 19.1 tells us that that's where he was found when the angels entered in, in the gates. And there was the steady progression of compromise in Lot's life. He went from just looking towards Sodom to pitching his tent nearby to living inside Sodom, losing everything when Sodom was attacked, 
And now back in the infamous city, he sat at the gate, indicating he was a civic leader. And Lot's legacy? Drunkenness and incest. Isn't it interesting that Leviticus also puts the sins of homosexuality and incest in the same chapter? And here we have it practiced also in Genesis 19. I was looking at answers in Genesis, um, and they do this study on different people from the Bible. And the article was called A Lot of Righteousness. And I thought that was funny. I had to pass along <laughs> that pun. And this is what the writer says, um, Troy Lacey. He says, Lot, the ineffective leader, the indecisive family man, the comfort-loving hedonist, the drunken dad. How could this man be called righteous, right? It's truly mind-blowing. But there's also hope, right, that we can live lives not filled with compromise and be known as that friend of God. That brings us to the last word in that shortest sermon, the wife who was she? Where was she from? This is the first, and obviously the last, um, time we really see any mention of her life here in Genesis 19. I was trying to think back, but even when Lot was uh, rescued from being taken captive, there was really no mention of his wife, even in that chapter. Um, Genesis 14, it says that they took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his house, 318, and pursued them into Dan. So there's not really this mention of like his wife or his kids back when he was taken captive. So I wonder, I wonder if he met his wife there in Sodom, maybe after this captivity. We don't know much about her beginning, but there's so much in her end to teach us. So much so that Jesus tells us this sermon Remember Lot's wife. She lost everything. She longed for the past. And, well, this made her kind of salty. She was, you know, bitter, not too happy about it, and turned into an actual pillar of salt. What caused her to look back? Right? Will you speculate with me on this a little bit? Maybe she struggled with materialism. And perhaps that is one of those lessons that we need to keep in mind when we're told, remember Lot's wife. Maybe she missed, maybe she had just gotten that dishwasher installed there in Sodom or her new TV or whatever it was. And she longed for those creature comforts in her home. And the thought of starting over caused her to think, oh no, I didn't bring my HGTV catalog. However, will I know how to decorate my new home and so on? So is that a warning that we need to take to heart, not to be covetous, materialistic women? Definitely. Perhaps the longing look was for the comfort and ease and convenience she had experienced in her old life. After all, her husband was a city leader. She had prestige. She had the hookups, right? She probably went to the grocery store and someone gave her a discount. And now she was going to be a nobody in a new city. So maybe she was missing some of that notoriety. She was missing some of that being well-known. And that's what caused her to look back longing for that old place. 
But in looking at this chapter in this context, I think perhaps one of the biggest lessons and one of the greatest reasons why Lot's wife turned back is because as she was turning her neck, she was turning up her nose at God's righteousness. Did God really kill all those people just because they were gay? Because of their sin? Could God really be so hateful? No. It, maybe she was judging the judgments of God and not willing to account him righteous for the act of wrath against this nation. You see, this is how the end of Romans 1 wraps up this idea. Again, a New Testament word regarding the sin of homosexuality. Beginning in verse 28, if you're quick, we can turn there in the New Testament. Romans, it's right after the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, before Acts, before all the tea books. Beginning in verse 28 of Romans 1, it reads, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, right? It doesn't mean that they couldn't retain him. They just didn't want to. They didn't like to retain God in their knowledge. So God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, verse 31, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. And notice verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Should I read that verse one more time? Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And that's the danger with so many in the church today approving of homosexuality as a lifestyle, right? To make it seem like, oh, they don't have a choice. They were just born this way. It's really about whom they love. They can't control that. It's who they are, right? Whether it's a Catholic person saying this or Protestant churches that are performing these marriages and outright promoting this lifestyle. They're approving of sin and really... This is true not just of homosexuality, right? But whenever a church representative approves of any kind of compromise, maybe it's gossip, maybe it's laziness, maybe it's complaining, and, and they just, they cater to that. Maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's doubt or fear, and the church family's like, oh, it's fine, it's okay. You know, you can struggle with that. That could, that could be your anxiety. You could just label it as your own and like put a little collar on it and make it your pet. No, these are sins that we're told to not do. Not only are we suppressing truth that that is a sin, but we're also suppressing victory over that sin. If we can't call it sin, then the blood of Jesus can't cover it. 
But if we call it sin, there can be victory. And that's the danger of approving of sins. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And is this not the case even for homosexuality, where we try to normalize things that aren't normal? Where even in homosexual um, couples, there is this adherence to gender roles. Why is that? Why, why does there need to be an adherence to gender roles within a homosexual couple if it's just normal that way? But the saddest thing is that they are falling short of God's greatest plan for their life. Complete with joy, complete with purpose, with fulfillment for their lives. And again, with any sin, when as a believer we say that compromise is okay, we are approving of that person falling short of the opportunity to glorify God. Which was the whole reason we were created in the first place. <sighs> Here are what some commentators had to say about Lot's wife. This one is Matthew Henry. It says, take the warning by her, not only to flee from the Sodom, but to persevere in your flight. And do not look back as she did. Be not reluctant to leave a place marked for destruction. Whomsoever or whatsoever you leave behind, that is ever so dear to you, those who have left the Sodom of the natural state, let them go forward. And not so much as, as look a kind look towards it again. Let them not look back, lest they should be tempted to go back. Nay, lest they be construed a going back in heart or an evidence that the heart was left behind. Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt that she might remain a lasting monument of God's displeasure against apostates who begin in the spirit and end in the flesh. This one is by Thomas Adams. He says, think on that pillar of salt that it may season thee. And lastly, Spurgeon, coming back then to the purpose with which I started, earnestly and personally to speak to the lingerer, I should ask you, my beloved friend, if this matter about which you are still hesitating, is it not of vital importance to you? It concerns your soul, yourself, your true self. It deals with your destiny, your impending, your eternal destiny. You are immortal. You acknowledge a deathless principle within you, and you are conscious that you shall live forever in happiness or woe. Do you think you ought to put off all preparation for that future which awaits you? So in conclusion, I think of the fact that just we are to remember, right? Remember what the Lord says. The first time that word remember shows up, it's God saying that he's going to remember his covenant. And the last two times that that word remember shows up, it's to the churches in Revelation. Remember from whence you have fallen and remember what you have received and heard. So we're going to close up there in Luke 17, looking at the context of this shortest sermon, Remember Lot's Wife. And it's Luke chapter 17, verse 28. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, they ate 
they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whosoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you that in the night there will be two men in one bed. And the one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. 37. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to him, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. The context of this short sermon is the closeness of the rapture. The Lord's return is so, so soon. And ladies, there is a pending judgment. Let us not love the world, whether it's materialism or compromise, convenience, comfort, or maybe it's even disagreeing with the Lord's judgment calls on sin. Rather than looking up and approving of those who are overcome with pride and sin, let us look up, right? Isn't that what we're told to do in light of the rapture? After all, time is short, and we're about to set the record for the shortest time left between now and the rapture. So as we close up tonight, I just wanted um, to present an opportunity, an invitation to pray for anyone's family members or friends that maybe are struggling with this homosexual lifestyle. They really bought into that lie from the enemy, that this is the only way that they will be free to express themselves, to be true to themselves. And we know that's the exact opposite, that the true version of themselves is what Jesus paid for on Calvary. So if you have a family member or a friend, someone that you know that is struggling with their identity, with homosexual attraction, in a moment I'm going to ask you to stand and we'll pray for you. And I also wanted to make the invitation, um, we'll pray for that, that family member friend. I also wanted to make that invitation available. If there's anyone that may be in the sermon, remember Lot's wife, are seeing their life and they're saying, wow, there's more fruit of Lot in my life than there is of Abraham. And I just wanted also to give that opportunity to stand up and and, and ask for prayer, right? Because there's times where we don't realize it, but our hearts have been compromising. We're kind of just going with the flow instead of standing for righteousness. So if either of those two invitations apply to you, would you please stand? If there's someone you want to intercede for that struggles with their gender identity or with homosexuality, or if you yourself are, are just feeling the spirit tugging at your heart saying, man, there's a lot more of lots in my life than there is of Abraham. Would you please stand? And let's pray. Lord, um, my heart breaks if I, as I think of all the souls that are represented by the sisters who are standing up, Lord. Men and women that you created in your image. That have bought into the enemy's lie. And we know that the enemy only seeks to steal, to kill, and destroy. But Lord, you have come that they might have true life and have it abundantly. So would you open these men and women's lives, Lord, 
to that abundant life that awaits them, Lord, if they could just denounce their sin, if they could just deny themselves, take up their cross and follow you, Lord. Help them to trust you, to see your kindness, your goodness, your grace and mercy, and that that would be what attracts them more to you than any other attraction that they might struggle with, Lord. Please, Jesus, be be the healer, be the redeemer over their lives, God. And I pray that you would use each and every one of these ladies um, to be that heart of Abraham in interceding for their friends and family, Lord. And God, I pray if any are standing because of just recognizing compromise in their life, Lord, would you please just convict and exhort and encourage them, Lord, that they would not go to sleep without taking care of whatever source of compromise is there, Lord, that they would no longer look back, that they would no longer sit in the gates of Sodom, Lord, whatever that represents, that we wouldn't be those people who approve of these sins, God, but that we would be looking up, knowing that our redemption draws near, Lord. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.